Hello and welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. This is Jacob. Don will be back in the host chair soon. This week's guests are special and not just because they are a husband and wife team. For the last six years, Deborah and James Fallows have been traveling around America, mostly via a single engine prop plane, and writing about what they learn. Deborah is a writer and academic who has published several books and has contributed to the New York Times, The Atlantic, and National Geographic. James is a longtime correspondent for The Atlantic and is among the few journalists who can claim to have won both a National Magazine Award and a National Book Award. They sat down to talk to me about covering positive stories in this environment, their unique working relationship, and how we can all maybe connect just a little bit better. Hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Here it is. Deb and Jim, welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Uh, Jacob, thank you. Thanks, Jacob. Of course, of course. So yeah, Jim, let's start with your most recent uh, piece uh, from Dayton, Ohio, and something that was both personal to you and, and made uh, the national news when, when when a mass shooting there left nine people dead. Can you explain just your personal experience of that day? Uh, yes, and thanks for, for reading and noticing that. Just by entire coincidence, I happened to be in the Oregon district of Dayton, or as they call it there, the Oregon district, um, just a few hours before that mass shooting in August. I'd been outside Dayton to a little town called Phillipsburg to do some some flight training there at a, a place called Steel Aviation. And after it was over, I went to see what this revived part of Dayton was like, the part of Dayton where they have the nightclubs and the bars and they've had, it's, they're so proud of it as this kind of 15 year ascent. And then a couple hours after I was there, there was of course the, the horrific shooting. And so I was in town for the next few days and saw the way it was just the white hot center of national attention as was El Paso in the same tragic weekend. Uh, again, for aviation reasons, about 10 days later, I was back in town and I talk with Nan Whaley, who's the uh, very popular Democratic mayor of Dayton, whom Deb and I have known for a while, just to ask her what it was like to have the world's attention on her for this four or five day period on her city, and then to have people go away, and how she hoped what Dayton had been through would have any kind of ripple effect other than just being a tragedy. So that's what I was writing about as the kickoff to, to more discussions of Dayton. Mm-hmm. And, and was that the first time either of you had, had visited Dayton then? And and then also, how did you hear about the tragedy initially? I, I've been to Dayton. Deb, you're from Ohio, but have you been to Dayton? I'm not sure. I, I've been kind of through Dayton, uh, which is what... <laughs> happens with a lot of people. I grew up right. in northern Ohio, but you know, as you as you drive through the state, you often end up driving through Dayton. I have just one kind of oddball linguistic thing to add to this. Mm-hmm. In my entire life of growing up in the Midwest and mostly in Ohio, I always pronounced the state of Oregon, Oregon, until I learned as an adult that everybody else said Oregon. Yeah. So, so it was uh, a real throwback to hear people say in the Oregon district, which is, I just underline how it's said in mm-hmm. Ohio. Right. And that, that's something Jim even mentioned in the piece. Yeah, it was. And that's <laughs> because I've been, I've been tutored by Deb. And I, I grew up on the West Coast, so I had heard, heard Oregon. And I had... Uh, been there a number of times over the past decade, again, for for oddball aviation reasons. It happens that sort of the the carmax of airplanes for mm-hmm. the kind of airplane I fly is at uh, the Steel Aviation in Phillipsburg, oh, wow. Ohio, which is about 10 miles out of town. And it's this little tiny strip literally in the middle of the cornfield 
but a husband and wife team there, uh, Jamie Steele and Danny Potter, have made it uh, the kind of the the trading place. So when we had an airplane before, uh, that we sold before moving to China, I flew it out there in 2006, and I've taken airplanes there off and on. So that's I've mainly been in Dayton as uh, <laughs> as as an adjunct of Greater Phillipsburg. Yeah, that's funny. And Dayton is actually a huge aviation center traditionally. I mean, the Wright brothers started there, and they took one of their initial flights flying textiles to Columbus for mm. some reason, um, <laughs> and attaching that Columbus to the Dayton uh, air, aeronautics uh, history. The first, here's something that very few people know, and now you'll be in the know. The first woman to fly around the world was, as we know, not Amelia Earhart. She didn't quite make it. But it was a woman who named Jerry Mock, who was from Columbus and made her her circumnavigation of the globe in, in the 60s. She was a housewife and a new, uh, a new pilot, actually, had just gotten her, um, her uh, instrument rating when she was kind of forced to try to take this um, trip around the world and be the first woman to do it. And she did it and has really gotten very little press since mm -hmm. then. So there's another Ohio yeah. factoid for you. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and so then how, how did you, this kind of fits in with, with the larger project, the R-Town's continuing project you guys are doing now, but how did you decide you wanted to go back to Dayton, you wanted to turn this into a multi visit uh, a story and how do you kind of figure out how to how to, how to frame it so the the last part of how we frame it is what uh, Deb and I have been talking about right now the reason for doing it is that uh, there's there's a kind of city that Deb and I have seen a lot of over the last you know six or seven years now of cities that are famous for having some disruption of Charleston, West Virginia, or mm -hmm. San Bernardino, or or Erie, or Duluth, and then how they deal with that and why the story is more than just number one opioids, number two disgruntled people who are laid off, and number three everything uh, coming from that. And so we'd seen Dayton is has gotten a fair amount of attention this way. There was a PBS documentary in 2018. There was a really excellent uh, documentary film that came out in 2019 called American Factory about a Chinese firm that has moved into a closed GM plant there. And because we had met Mayor Whaley, Mayor Nan Whaley over the years and heard about her ambitions, it's a place that we wanted to write about more. That's why I've, I've, I've kept going back there, including just this past week, to see about how they're trying to manage this turnaround and they're at an earlier stage than places like certainly Columbus, Ohio or Greenville, South Carolina or some others. Uh, so that, that that's the why and the framing. Shall I tell you the installments I plan to do? Of course. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I want to write about is is an under an increasingly important, but I think under noticed trend, which is universities deciding that their responsibility is the surrounding town. Mm. You can have as the sort of counterexample, um, the traditional view of like Yale and New Haven, where Yale happened to be in New Haven, or even like Stanford in East Palo Alto, where uh, there's the university and then there's kind of struggling town. Um, Muncie, Indiana, we were earlier this year, Ball State University there is, is, is literally taking over operation of the public schools, just figuring that wow. uh, that, that the, the city's future is its future. And the University of Dayton 
which is a successful research university, a Catholic university outside, away from downtown Dayton, has decided that it's going to take over the downtown challenge. So that's one thing I'm going to write about. I'm interviewing the president of the University of Dayton, and I mm -hmm. was an event for that. Uh, another thing I'm going to write about is that um, we've seen around the country a lot of these sort of industrial era downtown ruins, uh, department stores, big office buildings, et cetera, that got devastated uh, as, as the business went away. And Dayton has a lot of those, but they have a really ambitious, huge renovation project for something called the Dayton Arcade, which was this palatial downtown structure then in ruins and now is, I think, a $90 million project for retail and residential and re research sites. Fort Wayne, Indiana has things like that. So I'm going to do something first, the university, second, uh, about the, uh, the the downtown renovation. Um, third, uh, either Deb or I might write about this, a really ambitious opioid um, treatment center there where mm. where improbably Google has, well, Alphabet, you know, the, the kind of parent company, there's a the Alphabet subsidiary called Verily, which has decided that Dayton is going to be, be the place where they're going to try out some of their uh, their their most advanced um, opioid rehabilitation treatment centers, et cetera. So Dayton, which was in the lead of opioid problems, is going to be a place where, where this is launching. I might also write about this Chinese company, um, Fu Yao, uh, which has opened a site there, and probably about the little uh, the way in which <laughs> the tiny town of Phillipsburg has become the CarMax <laughs> of airplanes. Yeah. And uh, so th those are some of the, the framing ones we have coming up. And also, we're going to at least take a look at the immigrant and refugee population there to see how big it is and what's been going on. We don't know too much about that yet, but that's always the, the hit or miss of these explorations is that you go in there with ideas A through E and you end up doing F through K. Mm -hmm. Right. When you're thinking about what ideas to do and, and how to do them, what, it, what is the ultimate goal of a multi-week, month, post-process like this? So, um, I, I will. I'll give my answer, and then Deb, you can correct it. So, there's a just to be very um, frank about sort of how at this moment in history I'm thinking about the journalistic chores I'm I'm doing. Mm -hmm. There's a a lot of about half of my repertorial and and uh, writing life has been on national international issues like before the Iraq war is spending a lot of time saying don't go to an Iraq and we've <laughs> right. been in China and all that and at this moment in history I feel as if I can focus on being the thousand and first person to say here's the latest outrage coming out of the national government or I can be the second or third person to say, here is what happen is happening in these big heartland cities and the way in which they're trying to deal with the ongoing business of adjusting to economic change. So partly it's, I'm saying, I think there is more comparative advantage in working here. The reason of having a lot of installments, I think, is it's not so much because people need to care about Dayton, but it's, I'm going to try very hard in each of them to draw the larger point. For example, we've been having a series on the future of local journalism, where the point is not so much here's here's uh, Ulster County, New York, and upstate New York, but rather here's another model for changing the financial foundation of, of local journalism. I have something coming out later this week about Memphis mm. on that front. And so the idea, I think, of a lot of installments is to say, here are ways in which the Dayton 
example might shed light in other places. So I think we're, we're increasingly trying in this year's reports to sort of draw the, here's the point, here's the lesson, here's what can be extrapolated elsewhere. Right, Deb? Yeah, and um, so you can tell from what Jim said that he always takes the high altitude view of this and puts it in historical context and things. <laughs> and um, I'm more on the sidewalk um, and still going into every library that I can or or every take walking on every river walk that I find or going to the YMCA's and seeing what the people are like. And I, and I think um, the goal of installments like those are not just to add to the en encyclopedia of entries that we mm -hmm. have from town by town, but to try to help um, towns say, hey, they're doing this here, we could do a version of that, or here's some good ideas that we can modify to use in our hometown. Uh, more of a, of a news you can use that will be helpful to people. Um, we've, and this is partly because we've had so many questions from people of how do we start? How do we fix our town? Tell us what to do. Are there models for this? So to, to try to put it into um, some some larger picture of this is not just another one, like Jim said, but this is in this silo of schools or the environmental action or recreation. Here are all these different examples that, that you can try out at home, um, small ideas that are really have a big impact and are basically news you can use and to connect people and help them feel like they're not the only ones out there who are trying this, but it's, it's going on everywhere. And Jacob, can I horn in, in there just with sort of a, a phase shift comment? I think when we first started doing this back in 2013, we went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Rapid City, South Dakota, and Holland, Michigan, and then to um, Burlington, Vermont, and Eastport, Maine, I think. Our, our reaction was mainly, my God, we can't believe this. There's all this stuff happening in Sioux Falls. There's all mm -hmm. these refugees from Sudan working in the, the pork slaughtering plant, et cetera. And so for, for the first while, I think we just, the, the impression was we had no idea all these things were happening. I think now we're, we're trying as consciously as we can to, to shift into the, uh, you know, the news you can use mode. I say, speaking as a former editor of U.S. News, <laughs> which trademarked the, the phrase. And, and there's a, I'll just mention one other thing, in Pensacola, Florida, there's a very deliberate movement there to say what's the codification or what's the playbook or what's the how-to of how a city can rebuild its downtown, revive its civic engagement, support its local newspaper, et cetera. And we're trying to connect people who are looking for those step-by-step -step ways to actually get things done. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So I, I, let's dive into that a little more because that's really I'm fascinated by this project, which, like you said, started 2013, right? So it's mm -hmm. it's going on year six, if not year seven. Uh, um, and and what, what's so interesting to me is it, it's something different than typical journalism with a capital J or typical reporting with a capital R. And it, you, it, to me, in, in your writing and in all the various forms, you guys kind of come across more as, you know, smart, curious people more, more than, you know, uh, capital J journalist. I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a humanity or a, a transparency maybe in the writing. Do you, do you see what you guys are doing as just journalism? Do you see it as something slightly different? I don't know. I don't know if you, if you think about the terms you put on it. 
Uh, Deb, why don't I, I pass the baton to you for a minute? <laughs> okay. Jim will probably have a different answer to this because he's been a journalist all his life. Yeah. And and, and I haven't. Um, I have had a, a variety of, <laughs> of things I've done throughout my life. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think what the way I approach all of this is that um, – First of all, it was very easy. We both grew up in small towns and going into a small town and just asking people, hey, what's going on here? Tell us about your town with a completely blank slate felt like a very easy thing to do. Some people do it with cameras. Others do it with video recordings. Others do it you know, on the radio. But we just went in with our little notebooks and looking around as observers. So um, to me, it was just being a person going into a town saying, hey, what's going on here? And also, I I think at least I had the advantage of growing up in the Midwest where it's a a great kind of place to to grow up, but you always kind of want to leave and see the rest of the world. So this was a really natural adventure for me to go out and see what's happening outside the places where I grew up, even though mm-hmm. we're circling back to Dayton. <laughs> but it, it, I see it much more as a, a kind of normal person effort and, yeah. and a storytelling. Um, so, Jim, I know that your answer is not going to be that. <laughs> uh, my answer is, is similar, though. Um, the reason here are, here are two things I like about being a reporter, which is what I've done essentially all of my conscious life. I had always thought I was going to be a doctor. That's what I mm-hmm. started studying in college. But then I got involved in the college paper and spent all my time there. And I've mainly been a reporter ever, ever since then. Um, one is you uh, there's a psychological uh, trait that is different between Deb and me. But but I've, uh, she will kind of roll her eyes as I say this. Many reporters that are like me sort of temperamentally shy or introverted people who like the structural excuse to get out there and sort of play the role of asking about things. So it's a way in which I can not just be standing in the corner, but I can (laughs) ask people what's going on. Um, I find it by far the most interesting thing you can possibly do. Deb and I, we got married in England. We had our honeymoon in Ghana. We raised our kids in Malaysia and Japan for a while. We've been in in China. We like just being on the road and seeing things because just every day you come back and say, you won't believe what's going on in Gansu province, China. You won't believe what's going on in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It's just, you know, it's, it's really fun. And there's one other thing which I think is admirable about reporters in a way that's underappreciated which is that your job as a reporter is to always be in sort of in the um, not not the inferior position, but you're always in the less knowledgeable position Mm -hmm. relative to the person you're interviewing. You know, your job is to go there and ask somebody who knows more (laughs) about the history of Dayton or or a factory in in Allentown or or the military procurement budget or whatever you are there to ask in a. in a knowledge-seeking way, somebody else to tell you more, and I think that that uh, I think that is um, reporters should respect themselves for putting themselves in the long run in a position of of learning from others as opposed to telling them. You want you want to tell people, but you're not in the role of lording it of of other over other people, or at least you shouldn't be. And I think that's that's a good thing about the reporter's life. So we're just trying to convey. Um, when we were in China, we tried to convey what you didn't know about the place until you showed up. 
And I think something similar is what you didn't know about Fresno until you showed up there. And I guess I'd add two more things to that than not knowing where you're going with this story. To us, that was really important. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, we did some research before we went, like, would this town be interesting? But nearly every time when we got there, it didn't end up to be the story that we thought we were going there for. So there's kind of a really liberating thing of of doing journalism, but not looking for a story where you fill it in, but rather going to see, well, what is this story here? And kind of follow your nose from what people tell you about which direction to go. And, and the secret also is that everybody loves to talk about themselves <laughs> in their hometown. Yeah. So once you just start asking those questions, you, you can kind of sit back and take it all in. It- and, and here's one, and I agree with that, but here's one other thing about being a capital J journalist. I, I have an article in the brand new 50th anniversary issue of the Washington Monthly, mm-hmm. which was my very first magazine job just out of graduate school, you know, 48 years ago or, <laughs> or 47 year, years ago. Um, you know, to my credit, I was young then, but it's been 47 years. And I was saying that something that that, that is... Um, was interesting about the Washington Monthly Gospel from the beginning is that it was um, based on understanding why things don't work in the government and in companies and in foreign affairs or in wars or whatever, but also understanding why they do work when they do. And I think there's a kind of asymmetry in a lot of journalism where people feel some kind of uh, sheepish or if they're going to be suckers. Mm-hmm. If they do reporting on why things work, right? And, you know, in business journalism, people do that. Uh, Michael Lewis has has made a brilliant career mm. out of writing about you know Moneyball was yeah. about how how things worked, and there are Soul of a New Machine was about how things worked. But but I think it's part of what we've um, tried to introduce in this project is that it's a legitimate realm of inquiry, and it's not boosterism to say what happened to make to allow Greenville, South Carolina to recover from the collapse of the textile industry? And how, how do they do it? And that, that's a legitimate thing to ask. And I think the corollary to that, I guess, is there's an assumption in journalism, accurate or not, that people don't want to read the happy story, right? I mean, that there's some, there's an ingrained belief, right, that if it, if it bleeds, it leads, whatever, what have you. And, and have you guys found that that's maybe not, uh, shouldn't be a hard and fast wisdom? Early on when we were doing this, I think we had a lot of eye rolling from some of our <laughs> D.C. colleagues, especially saying, oh, God, who, this is just like Parks and Recreation. This is just <laughs> like Waiting for Guffman. Mm-hmm. This is just who, who wants, wants to, to read this. But there's been, number one, I think, after especially the 2016 election, people thought, oh, we should pay attention to these places right. in the interior of the country. And number two, there's there's just this tremendous ongoing appetite from people who live in actual places saying, <laughs> what did they learn in California about changing their high schools? What mm-hmm. did they learn about from Tulsa about having this giant new park, et cetera? So I think we found people may not might not live want to read, quote, happy news stories, quote unquote, but but there we found compared to I'd say anything else I've done in my journalistic career, which is now back to the Pleistocene era, that, that there's more more sustained interest from wow. from the public than anything I've ever been involved in. Deb, uh, you've only been around for a few years, but what do you say? <laughs> yeah, equally as many years, but not in the business. Um, 
over since from 2013 until now, I would say that there's really been a shift. Uh, Jim described the beginning of it, but now we'll hear more and more comments, or at least I do, of it's so good to hear some happy news. Tell me some happy stories. Yeah. I, th- I think there's a um, you know there's a real fatigue of and weariness from bad news and troubled news and violent news and mm. you name it in the negative category that that people kind of welcome the relief. You know, it's like going to a rom-com movie or something, mm-hmm. but it happens to be true. <laughs> and and I, I think uh, <laughs> this is a yin-yang complementarity between Deb and me. I, I think it's it's a matter of proportions that there are a lot of really terrible things going on in the U.S. right now in the world. And I think we are, it's important to be informed about that. And people are are informed about that because cable news is 99% you know, what the, the latest disaster that's happening, and that's important. But there's this whole other aspect of life that, that is just not not known. And uh, there's, I, I think that Matthew Arnold originally had his saying about see things steady and see them whole. And then that became the motto of the, the British newspaper, The Guardian in the 1800s. And I think that's sort of the see things whole mm-hmm. is the idea we're trying to get across. There There's the, the full picture of the trauma for the U.S. now, but also the people who are who are battling it in various ways. Do you have a sense of, of what uh, the impact, how, how people would act differently if, if they did have, uh, if they were seeing things whole, if they were seeing things, I, mean, I, I guess I could say if they were seeing things for the way you guys see it? There's a quote that we have, I think, at the, at the end of, of our book from Philip Zelikow. Um, who's a he, he's worked for mainly Republican, pre, both of the presidents Bush he worked for in the White House and the State Department. Now he's a professor at the University of Virginia. And he was saying he had the the feeling, as we did, that there were lonely voices around the country who would think of this, themselves differently if they imagined they were part of a chorus. Hmm. If they imagined there was a different melody, if they thought there was a movement going on. So I, I think that, that it probably is that the shift we've been trying to do for people, I, I think, is to have them think it's not just that they are these anomalies in a sea of horrors. Right. You know, that the developments in Tulsa, uh, you know, I, I can list 50 cities where people feel like it's gotten a lot better and to recognize this is part of a movement as opposed to being one little fortress that has to defend itself from decay every place else. And I think there's also a, a really important aspect of how people react to all of this, which is um, that whereas with the national government, you feel like there's not much that you as an individual can do except watch the news and be informed and have an opinion. But when you're when you're in towns and when you're in a place where you live, you can actually do something. You can run for office. You can become the dog catcher. You can try to change the schools. Um, and and you you are accountable to where you live and to take responsibility for it and to be nice to your neighbors and so forth. So it's a it's a kind of different way of operating in your local circumstances where you have agency and responsibility and power that mm-hmm. you don't that you don't have in a in a national setting. I, I would say that we've seen that change a lot more. Um, I was just, for example, at this conference in um, convening summit meeting 
in Greenville, South Carolina of rural women. And so many of the um, workshops going on there were things like how to run for office and how to win. Yeah. And, it, and it was step by step of mm. how to do these things where you can be an impact, have an impact, not just dream about it and talk about it, um, but actually do it. And, and I, I think that's, you know, that's an important kind of shift of, of energy and focus. And do you guys think that your, it seems to me your position has shifted at least a little bit now that you've been doing this for, for several years and you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but going from initially you, you go into these places and, and uh, you you are coming from, from the limited knowledge and, and talk to people who know more. And, and now you guys have mentioned people reaching out to you asking how they can improve their cities and how you guys can, can take what you've learned in certain cities and, and maybe help other people more, a more active role, a more expert role. Is that, is that, is that a shift that you've embraced at all? I think we, we are, um, you know, we spent most of this year, 2019, working with uh, some good friends and very talented people from HBO and making a documentary. It will come out uh, probably ne- next year about places we've been. And so we, we, uh, we've spent more time since our book came out, both working on this movie and trying to share things we've seen at you know, in, in meetings and mm-hmm. conferences and all that around the country. I think that our longer term goal, Deb, I'm sure you'll correct me if this is wrong, <laughs> is to is to connect as much as we, we can, because there are people who are doing similar things all around the country. And I think we want to make connections that might not be obvious to, to them and also to try to use the the one our, our sort of comparative advantage in the whole lineup of people working on these local projects is we can write about them and tell their story and give some try to um, draw it. So I'll, I'll give, give you an example. I've been writing about different funding models for local newspapers as they try yeah. to escape from private equity, and every day. I get five new messages from people <laughs> saying, oh, here's what we're doing in Nevada. Here's what we're doing mm-hmm. in Montana. Here's what we're doing in Iowa. Come tell our story. And so I think that that's, that, that's a kind of connecting role we can, mm-hmm. can do. Right, Deb? Yeah. And, and we don't, we've also learned that we don't have to start a movement. We don't have to reinvent the wheel on how you're supposed to fix your main street. There are a lot of organizations that yeah. already exists and people who are doing that and there are models for how to do that so to help um, publicize those and get people into the right channel so that they can um, you know copy what's already been done and you you do their version of something um, is something that we feel we can we can do but we don't have to start all over <laughs> from scratch because it's already been happening people are really good at it yeah you mentioned longer term goals. The book came out last year. It's been, I don't know, 15 months. What do you guys have a, a five year plan for this project? Do you have a, a one year plan? How, how do you how do you think about moving forward? So, Deb. Oh, yeah. We're just we're struggling right now. We're trying to figure out the answer to that question yeah. because we could all go on for the rest of all of our lives reporting mm-hmm. about towns and it would be really fun. Mm-hmm. But at some point, it seems wise to just stop and use what leverage you have or what microphone you have hmm. to to try to make the whole thing bigger and more effective hmm. um so i what's your we don't you can hear me mumbling here i don't really have it so we you guys really are running you're running for governor for of, of a state it sounds like right <laughs> we're, we're supporting other people doing that but you know in the 
in the, I guess the first event we did for our book was the Tom Tom Festival in Charlottesville back in the spring of 2018. So it's been now about 16 or 17 months from then, since then, we've spent almost all that time on, on the road. Yeah. And there's all these other places we know now, know about now in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and mm-hmm. Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and, and Tulsa, Bellingham, Oklahoma, and Tulsa, which is fabulous, and and Cincinnati, where we've been. So there's all these other stories that we want to want to try to to, to tell. So I think we are going to, at the end of this year, trying to take a pause and say, okay, how mm-hmm. can we make this sustainable mm-hmm. to be able to draw lessons uh, from people's stories. And, and, and here's something really heartening. <laughs> I heard I was at a, uh, a conference in Dayton, Ohio, early this week before we were all talking called Gem City Rising of how uh, Dayton calls itself the Gem City and how it could uh, combine its, its various ambitions. And there was a speaker there who was saying, well, he thinks there's a lot of really interesting things going on in Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I thought, yes, Erie, this is a place where, where we, we've, we've been to Erie a million times in the last few years and have taken Erie on as one of our sort of second second homes. Mm. And the idea that that one place is learning from another, that's something we'd like to see just more and more of and, and try to foster however we can. Yeah. And, and, and talking for, about, about learning from one another, why don't we, I, I'm, I'm so curious about your, your professional partnership. How, 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 how do you guys work? Do you guys talk about these towns over dinner? Do you, do you have some sort of, some sort of boundaries? Do you divide and conquer? How have you guys, how has that evolved? (laughs) Deb. (laughs) Oh gosh. Um, well, um, we do different things and you can probably just tell from this conversation that we approach them really differently or different kinds of people. Um, so I, I don't know, we've been married for a really long time and we know each other really well. So, being in such an intense joint project has actually been quite easy because we know each other's strengths and Jim knows my weaknesses. Ha <laughs> ha, little joke. Um, <laughs> um, and I think just what makes it work is that, you know, it's not about us. It's about everything that we're seeing every day that is so much bigger than just mm-hmm. how our relationship works, <laughs> that that's doing just fine. There's just so much to do. And we know who does what, when, how, better and worse. Yeah. So it, it kind of has surprisingly, am I right, Jim? Not really <laughs> in, intruded in a way that or become an issue or a factor that legitimate question but it's okay (laughs) i I think in a way we hadn't anticipated uh this project has been much both much better in its journalism and much much better received and more interesting Hmm. because uh because we're doing it as a longtime married team yeah rather than just another another grizzled journalist coming (laughs) to town uh deb is a much more outgoing and likable mm. person than I am. <laughs> uh, she's um, so it, it really uh, improves things to have both of us coming to town to have Deb, uh, you know, making friends and also presenting what we found. And, and we did this in China. We were in China. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were I was out in factories each day or in coal mines and Deb was in Chinese classes or dealing, uh, haggling with, with merchants. And we just got a sort of complimentary view of China. And every night we'd say, you can't believe this thing we we've seen, which is basically our, has been our mode over the last mm-hmm. uh, few years on the road too. Yeah. And Jim, Jim thinks the big thoughts and I put, um, plug in a lot of observations that, uh, maybe it's more EQ or, 
to compare it with IQ, but or however you want to say it, it um, yin yang, you know, which is supposed to be better when you get the two things together than either separately. Right. I hope so. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> and it becomes obvious to everyone within a minute or two of meeting us where the power lies in our family mm -hmm. uh, so that they 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 sort of appreciate that. I think there was um, we have many stories in China that are leading up to that conclusion, which I will not not go into. But I think it's been uh, it's it's been interesting. We've not had a moment of thinking, oh, what are we going to do after the kids have grown up and left? What are you going to do now that uh, we finished this or that pro project has been it's been every minute has been fun, right, Deb? Yeah, it actually pretty much has been fun. <laughs> there are a few blips, and and we're really also trying. Our kids lecture us on uh -huh. on work life balance, and we we've got a whole a whole team of grandkids now. So we really do need to spend more time. We want to try to spend more time with them than we've Good been correction. able to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and it's not just I'm not just doing lip service to that. I miss yeah. those little guys. They're mm -hmm. they're a riot. Um, so we, we will we promise the kids that we would be lead a more balanced life <laughs> like they do. And we, we raised only sons, but we now have a flock of four out of our five grandchildren are little girls. So oh, Deb wow. now feels as if yeah. as if history's pendulum Finally, is finally right. swung in her direction. Okay, right. Uh, and and how much how much do you guys talk about your 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 based uh, around DC? How much do you guys personally talk about national news, political news? You know this kind of stuff that you're 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 counteracting in your work. Uh, um, I think like everybody else does, and I have this sort of just as as Deb and I have our divide and conquer or our divide and mm -hmm. <laughs> and unify a role <laughs> in our reporting. I have in my. You know, I have a, a Twitter part of my existence, yes. which is much more national news focused than than our, our our web posts. And I think we probably bellyache about national news as much as anybody else. Right, <laughs> yeah, Deb? right. It's our it's our neighborhood. You know, it's where right. we live. It's everybody's everybody's involved in this or only one or two steps removed from it. Not even two. <laughs> so it, it takes over our life. And frankly, it's a huge relief to not be here all the time. Right, yeah. right. I, I can only imagine. And uh, Jim, you mentioned the, the the Twitter presence. Does that allow you to you know to blow off journalistic steam and 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 not not get sucked into sucked into uh, that world to to cover it? Or I I think that that's its actual effect. The reason I, I realized looking back on it, the reason I got into all this is that back in an earlier era of history when there were such things as blogs mm -hmm. you could do that uh I, I had you know a blog on the atlantic site where i could in 15 minutes <laughs> i could write something 300 words long and and i think that that the whole world of online discourse has become much more formalized hmm. and i think as the atlantic has sort of grown up uh, for better and worse in its online presence where there are now copy editors and there's now the legal department and there's now you know uh the, the, you know wanting photo to be sure rights of, and, photo yeah. rights and and so it's i think that that twitter has taken the psychological place for me of things that i used to do as quick blog posts like during the 16 campaign i had something called the trump time capsule where i just do sort of real-time annotations of things donald trump was doing that no previous candidate for our nominee right. ever done. Mm -hmm. I got to, I think, 162 Oof. entries by um, by election day. And those were something I could just do, you know, like that, essentially. Um, and, and that's just not 
sort of structurally um, it's it's not as 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 natural to the modern evolved web system. So mm-hmm. that's uh, and, and I'll see actually if I one of the things I'm planning for next year to see is whether I whether I can recreate some more blog like outlet for the hmm. national politics part of my consciousness. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Jim's. I would say you're really good at compartmentalizing these mm-hmm. two aspects of your life. You know, the political life and the <laughs> the real life. Yeah. And one of your many charms is that you don't compartmentalize <laughs> at all. No, that's so what, true. Yeah. <laughs> whatever is happening is happening yeah. uh, from tip to toe. It's true. It's Part of your charm. True. Right. Thanks. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask, I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, your, your coverage kind of fits something like travel writing. You know, it, it, you talk about the journey in a lot of these posts. You talk about your personal experience in a lot of these posts and also what you're what you're seeing, and I know, uh, I think it was the, the Ezra Klein podcast, I think, Deb, where you uh, recommended Tocqueville's work, which is, you know, kind of the the original political travel writing. Do, do, do you guys, do you guys see a model there that, that you look to when, when you're thinking about how to write, or and, and I'm curious if you read a lot of travel writing? I, I think we, we read everything at the beginning, you know, Mark Twain, Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. um, Tocqueville, that was rough going. Uh, William Least Heat Moon, you name it, Steinbeck, we read them all. Um, and I think took some lessons from it. We probably got different things out of it, even though, you know, Tocqueville was right, gosh. Um, but so was Mark Twain in, mm. in just his commentary about heading out to, as he was going to meet his brother, I think, who was like in the Nevada territory then staying, what it was like to be on a stagecoach and what it was like to stop at the stagecoach stops and eat in the bars and sleep in a bed with six people and all these things that really brought it to life. So maybe it was a bit of everybody was on our minds, but, uh, but it was nobody. It was us in a different way. So I think there, there's, you know, it's a it's a cliche and a classic in Americana, the road trip across the, the, the country. But I think we, we came to think there were, in addition to what Deb was saying, there are a couple of virtues of it. One is there's built in narrative structure. We went here, then we went there, we mm-hmm. went there. And so there's uh, often the simplest way to structure a narrative is the easiest of just, you know, first this, then that. And also, I think people um among the reasons that travel writing has been a classic for centuries in the US is that it really is the countryside suits itself to that it's a big beautiful different stretch of land and as you go from north to south and from east to west and over the mountains and through the passes and up the rivers there's things you see and there is a kind of of legitimate adventure to seeing how Illinois is different from Indiana and how it's different from Iowa and just how uh, the Dakotas are laid out and what, how you feel when you get across the Sierra into California. So I think that that it's um, from our, our from our version of the cross country road trip in the little plane, we had a kind of passion for saying actually the country is really interesting and it's more diverse than people think. And mm-hmm. here's here's what we saw the the journey of the process of travel was a huge asset i would say it's it's different from a family saying let's let's go for our family vacation to san francisco and maybe they get on a plane and then suddenly they're in san francisco 
by the time we got to Sioux Falls, we knew what we had traveled over. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you cross the Mississippi and then you, uh, this is not necessarily the Sioux Falls, but say going through the south, you you go through the piney, for, piney woods forests and then it's all kudzu looking down really green. Then you cross the Mississippi and then you get into these deserts of West Texas and all you hear on the air traffic control are the medevacs and realize mm -hmm. that's how people are going to get to emergency mm -hmm. care. They need to take a helicopter because it's so far away. And, um, and the colors change and the, the airs, the air changes and the sounds that people, the way people speak changes. So it's, it, it, it's a slow process and it's sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're cold, <laughs> but you really know that you're covering some territory in a, in a different way. And that's a real privilege. And there's one other particular thing that, that I think I see flying the plane towards these places of just there is a kind of magic when you're 60 or 70 miles out from a city in our little plane. That That's that's the equivalent of like 15 minutes out, 15, 20 minutes out. You're starting to get ready to land there. And so I'm thinking about how the airport's going to be uh, lined up with the rest of the city and how the winds are and all that. And just the process from even from three or 4,000 feet up from 50 or 60 miles away, you're headed towards this place and you see it coming. And, and the closest comparison I can think is how when you're in, you're in an ocean liner or you're some kind of sailing ship going across the sea and you have your first glimpse of land. And you have, you know, you see it and it starts getting bigger. So I'm looking for all the landmarks of the town and just thinking about how we're going to 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 um, make our final approach and landing there. And just there is a kind of of grandeur to the setting of even a small place in its surroundings at, when it's when it's the point you're you're flying towards and aiming towards and and just uh so anyhow deb that's what i'm thinking of in the last 15 minutes before we land yeah and so here's what jim misses since he's actually <laughs> flying the plane um when you're sitting in the right seat you can you can take all of this in at 1500 feet and and you can count the number of steeples that there are in the town or you can see if people have swimming pools that are those circular ones above ground or if they're carved into the ground you can see if this the roads have grids or if they're kind of meandering how much countryside is there around it is it near water and it becomes um and then as you get closer and closer and and see you can see if buildings look abandoned if there are no cars in a parking lot and then finally if there are weeds growing in that parking lot and like nobody's been in that factory for a really long time so you you kind of you get a a sense of geography and of history at this low altitude in those last 15 minutes that kind of prepares you for what you're going to sets a context for what you're going to mm. then see when you actually land and and make your way into town. And and when you guys have to or get to, you know, write your reports from these places, uh, what what role do you guys see for the stories that that you tell? When you you're trying to tell you know a bird's eye a complete you know an honest a whole picture and 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 is it is it feel limiting to kind of bring that into a single story does it feel uh, like like you're strengthening what role between the stories and and the bird's eye view what what happens in that kind of transformation? I think for for me one virtue of having done this in serial journalism incremental installments over a number of years now is 
you don't have to pretend that any one dispatch is the full story. You can say, here's, uh, let's take the example of San Bernardino, where we mm -hmm. spent a lot of time, and I grew up right next to it in, in Redlands. San Bernardino is, on the one hand, a really, really troubled town. On the other hand, there's lots of interesting things happening there. I think you have the idea that that today you're going to tell about one aspect and tomorrow you're going to tell another aspect and then you're mm -hmm. going to do another one next week. I think it reduces the pressure and you can have some of the complexity of there's it's really hard to boil any of these places down to is it good or is it bad because they're all both good and bad. But you can say, you know, here's another log on the fire. Here's, here's another brick in the road, and that's why I've liked being able just to have installments. Deb? Yeah, no, I agree completely with what Jim says, and it takes a lot of the pressure off to think you don't have to be Jane Goodall or <laughs> Margaret Mead and, you know, be in that colony forever. Yeah. You can um, just be honest and report what you write and know that you're not going to know everything because you'd have to live there forever to, to know that. Right. And I, I think there, there's also a sort of um, middle zone of knowledgeability that we feel <laughs> um, comfortable in. Obviously, we're not from any of these places except San Bernardino. And, and they're, they're, mm -hmm. so we don't, we don't know them the way people know if they've lived, lived there forever. But also, we try never to write about a place where we've just been for a day or two. So where you just go in there and you go to a diner and you say, you know, who, who do you like in the election, et cetera. So we, tr we, we, there are a lot of places we've been that we haven't written anything about because we were just there for a couple of days. And we felt as if that would be, we didn't sort of have traction even to make these incremental uh, partial, partial assessments. When, when you're in a place for a long time talking to lots of different kinds of people, there comes this moment where you've heard the same story six times from yeah. six different perspectives. And you think, okay, I get that. I get that <laughs> point. I think that's true. Um, and that's, that's really reassuring. And it usually happens if, if we're there for, you know, if we're there for a long enough time and talk to the dozens of people who have, who wear lots of different hats and yeah. different perspectives. And, and I do think um, growing up in small towns ourselves makes that easier because we kind of know, what the panorama is like and who the players are. are. Mm -hmm. Do you guys ever disagree w w with the outlook that you hear on the ground? Um, <laughs> well, there, there's an example I will give only in general. So the short <laughs> answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Here's something I will be, I will vague up because yeah. I don't, it's, I don't want to. You might be back. Yes, you might be back <laughs> is, We've been to places where people who are obviously at the top of the social ladder there, of the income ladder mm -hmm. and the status ladder and the racial ladder will say, oh, there's no inequality in this town. <laughs> there's no divisions. Everybody's happy. And that is um, <laughs> that's not how it looks to other people in the town. Mm -hmm. And so we feel generally our, our, our role there is not to do some expose of, oh, look, here is Colonel Blimp in mm -hmm you know, in, in, uh, in some place in the South, but rather just to, to hear enough that there, there's something new or surprising or illuminating we can say, but yes, that there are places where, uh, where we hear, we hear people say things that in our more limited knowledge, we disagree with. Yeah. And, and you, and that's not that difficult to suss out. Cause you know, you know, 
who those people, the role that they play in the town or mm -hmm. what their own interests are. But um, so it, it kind of makes sense that they say what they say. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And in some cases, that that's their job, right? Yeah. Um, two, I have two, two, two last questions. Uh, the first is, you know, we have a lot of writers in our audience that kind of geared towards them. The second is geared, geared towards everybody else. So, uh, and you guys can, can each answer one. You can divide and unify whatever, however you want. But Jim, you mentioned earlier, you know, you've kind of noticed and, and you wrote a book, uh, what, 23 years ago now about some, <laughs> some of the some of the media's uh, issues, how the media undermines American democracy, something along those lines. Um, and, yeah, and, and you Okay. It was it was breaking the news was the main yes. title and how yes. the media undermine American democracy. Those were the days. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And you mentioned, I think, in, in that book and, and, and just uh, in this short conversation that you've kind of found journalists sheepish, sheepish to applaud. Right. Kind of hesitant to to go along with with, with maybe a, a positive story. What what advice would you have? I mean, maybe it's an issue of ego. I don't know what it what, what, what you chalk it up to, but what advice, how, how can journalists be nicer? How, how can they see the, a fuller picture? I think that, that journalists are not in business to be nice with what we write. You want mm. to be pleasant and respectful when you interview people and you want um, nobody to feel as if you have treated them dishonorably or, or unfairly. And, and you want to be certain, uh, but, but that, but that doesn't mean you need to be, uh, you need to shave off the rough edges and what you say. But I, I think there is a there's a natural tendency for anybody who comes into this business to be looking for the expose, to be Lincoln Steffens, mm -hmm. to be Ida Tarbell, to be Rachel Carson. And that is that is our first duty. Our first duty is to afflict the comfortable and to find the things that are going wrong. And the difficulty is to recognizing that's not our only duty. There also is some legitimate function in talking about how things can work mm. and how they have worked and how companies and societies and people can evolve. And it, there's just something that makes that seem um, embarrassing mm. uh, in, in th that you're you're being a sucker if you do that. So I guess it's um, this is an issue that comes up actually all the time between Deb and me. <laughs> because Deb feels much less stress and just saying, oh, this is great. This is working well. And I always feel just this kind of um, powerful instinct to say, well, there's 16 other problems which we need <laughs> to bear in mind, but this thing is actually working. And so, Deb, maybe you should answer this. One thing I, I would say is that I, I find I work really hard at getting as much information and doing the reporting as seriously and thoroughly as I can, and then work really hard at being as honest as I can. And mm. finally, I'm the only one who knows what I didn't say, right? Um, and what I chose to say and how I chose to say it. So I, I take that as a great responsibility to, to not shape a story that's not there, but to, to try to tell it really honestly. Yeah, and, and so that, that's a good segue into, into my last question then, which is for everybody else, for journalists and, and, and otherwise, uh, you guys have, have shown you know year over year, time and again, the, the value of connecting, of, of seeing. So what what advice do you have for people who, who want to connect? You know, we've been sold kind of this idea of, of, of digital connection by the, these uh, mammoth companies, and I think it hasn't gone exactly as, as everybody would have hoped. So 
you know, how within a community, between communities, from one coast to the other, to, to the next, besides you know reading your guys' work on the Atlantic, what what what, what can people do to, to connect from each other to, to learn from each other? My answer would be within a community, simply do anything. Mm-hmm. Go to the library, <laughs> uh, be part of any civic organization, go for a walk in the parks. Um, it's uh, I, I am a cat rather than a dog person. It's a shame you can't walk cats on leashes <laughs> because walking dogs seems to be a way to bring people together. Yeah. Just just anything that it, within a community that, that is, is good. And I think uh, between communities, the, I think the main thing is to travel as much as possible and when you get to other places don't at do never ask the question that is guaranteed to increase the anger level and decrease the sophistication of a conversation which is who are you going to vote for mm-hmm. do you like trump do you like hillary do you like person x y or z anything else about the life city by city is much more interesting much more connectable than those national political um uh, themes. So, Deb, you can you can give the the spiritual ending here. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I, I agree with Jim that just getting out there and doing things is the most important. And and nobody does anything right the first time, but you learn from each thing you do. Um, like like I suppose running for office, how many people try it and fail and then do it again and actually don't fail. Mm-hmm. Um, but there. It's very humbling to to just show up and raise your hand and try to do something that you've never done before. Um, but people respect that and they applaud that. The other um, kind of larger version of of doing this locally is how valuable it is for people to work in their silos and try to connect with people who are doing similar things. Like, let's just talk about the librarians. They always learn things from each other when they go to meetings about Mm -hmm. what they do in their their towns. And that's actually something that um, I wish people had the means to do more because a lot of people in a lot of professions like librarians would profit a lot by by having the um, budget to go to a, a meeting that's, three states away or in, on the other side of the country to just kind of see what's going on. Um, and if if I were doling out money, <laughs> I'd dole it out in the direction of, of making people able to travel around a bit and find find their compatriots yeah. in whatever they're doing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, fantastic. So th- lastly, then, what, what is the best way for people to keep uh, track of, of your travels and, and, and what you guys are doing? We have a site called um, OurTownsBook.com where we have a collection of all of our our writings and uh, um, have also an Atlantic site. And so, Deb, w- what's the best way? <laughs> yeah, I think I think those are the two things, and and we'll try to make those more um, obvious about where to go. But those are those are the two best places right now. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. Well, well, Deborah and, and, and James Fallows, uh, ourtownsbook.com, uh, coming to a town near you, hopefully sometime soon. Uh, thank you guys so much for, for being on the podcast. I also want to thank uh, Peter Bailey Wells, this week's producer, for, for putting it together. And obviously, uh, for everybody listening uh, to the Sunday at Long Read podcast, Jim and, and Deb, thank you guys so much. Jacob, thank Thanks, you. Jacob. Thanks for your wonderful it's questions. Interesting. <laughs> of course. Have a great one. Mm-hmm.